This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. Today, we were offering five conversations from episode 36, in which first-time guest and Anglo-Australian hepatologist James O'Byrne joins Louise Campbell, old friend Naeem Al-Khoury, and me to discuss James's recent Locate Naples study to evaluate strategies for and the value of recruiting high-risk referrals through primary care practices, plus a vault episode from last November addressing the psychology of diet decision-making. This vault conversation comes from an episode almost exactly 12 months ago on different frontline screening methods, with Ian Rowe reporting on a study he and his colleague Richard Parker conducted comparing five approaches. In this conversation, Ian, Louise, and I discuss some of the challenges in early diagnosis and treatment and how these might evolve or alternately become more complex as new drugs for NASH and other metabolic conditions become available. Conversation has a robust introduction of its own, so let's listen to that and then the conversation itself. Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 39, our look at early diagnosis models, plus, from the vault, a 2021 conversation that sheds light on similar issues. I start this conversation by mentioning some issues and arguments we've heard in earlier episodes. First, the idea that some patients whose treatment starts when they have cirrhosis and are decompensating may have heard for years that they have fat in the liver, but not to worry about it. Now, ILFT would solve that problem, whereas the most cost-effective approach, fibrosis first, would not solve for that broad group of patients with fatty livers, but would pick up those people whose fatty liver disease had progressed past basic NAFL to clinically relevant fibrosis. Second, I mentioned Quentin Anstey's recent easel presentation focusing on the prognostic value of FIB4 and how high and indeterminate scores might have different values against different kinds of disease. Louise Campbell shifts from the focus on the initial diagnosis to the idea that the largest challenge is in using diagnostics and feedback to manage and monitor patients. She notes that patients who receive sustained behavior management do far better over time than those who do not, and suggests that the management approach might be far less expensive and more effective than providing inadequate management until patients progress to the point where they need drugs, surgeries, etc. I ask whether that kind of approach would have significant cost to this model, and as the conversation ends, Ian is addressing that issue by considering when tests actually bring value to the diagnostic and treatment processes, whereas when they simply bring information that is not tremendously actionable. As we've all heard on this podcast over the years, late diagnosis costs money and haunts patients who live with the severe downstream consequences of a disease that became more severe while physicians assured them that it was not an issue and did not need to be treated until it was late. This model provides insight into steps that might bring earlier treatment to the patients who need it at a socially acceptable cost. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. I've got three or four thoughts running around in my head that things that we talked about on this podcast and elsewhere in life that are related to this, but not exactly this. So here's the first one. Patients finding out for the first time of their disease in ED who say, 20 years ago, someone told me I had excess liver fat, but not to worry about it. When I think about the ILFT, the benefit of ILFT, it's that nobody tells people not to worry about it early on. Now, that that looks pretty expensive in this analysis. I'm not sure how it would look in other analyses. Stay with me for a minute on this. I don't know the answer. Okay, but I do know the question, which is that um, all the patient advocates telling us, gee, I should have heard about this 20 years ago. If we go fibrosis first, I'm not sure it solves that problem. It does solve the problem of the people who then proceed from, we're told 20 years ago, they had fatty liver not to worry about it. And then there's a 20-year wasteland and they show up with uh, cirrhosis or encephalopathy in, in an ED. You'll pick it up at F2 or F3, which is really what this is designed to do. So the patients who proceed to need treatment find out they need treatment earlier, but they've still got a significant amount of disease at the point where they hear that. So that's thought number one. Thought number two, Quentin Anstey was on a couple of weeks ago talking about, uh, among other things, a presentation that he gave at 
easel, which took a look at Fib4 high, Fib4 indeterminate, and Fib4 low, and suggested that Fib4 indeterminate, largely because of age, but not entirely because of age, was a pretty good predictor of all-cause mortality and a really good predictor of cardiovascular uh, disease relative to Fib4 high. So I'm wondering where that fits into this model in terms of, do you think about a world where Fib4 sets a path on whether you go on to TE or not, um, but you want to grab that on everybody because you're going to find people at indeterminate levels who got other uh, mortality risks that aren't liver. So that was my second thought, that I've got patients who say, gee, you could have told me 20 years ago. Although for each of those, we have 10 people you could have told 20 years ago where it wouldn't have changed anything in the path of their health. And then my third thought, Louise, goes back to, I wonder whether you said people who have an effect of an interaction with FibroScan that lasts for two years, what percentage of people have that effect? And the reason I ask is that you're a compellingly good salesperson. So I'm, I'm certain that if you're the person doing the FibroScan, the percentage of people that you're going to motivate to take this seriously are going to be uh, significantly higher. Not than everybody, but than many other people. So what percentage do they see in the study? Louise Campbell. I think you have to look at it as you said, certainly in healthcare, because I come from two sides. In people with a healthcare diagnosis, if you do it, and when we were doing it with skilled nurses or doctors, you get an effect and people want to know the result. They also ask the question most times, oh, what can I do about that? So you can give them a solution. When I look back at some of the data we done, around about 85% of people made a lifestyle change, even in healthcare, on that first appointment. I think the difficulty we have in healthcare is a lack of access to continually monitoring. And now we've discussed that before. Stephen and I both felt, and others, that really, if you're going to make a behavioral change, you should be monitoring it every three months because you get reassurance. When I've seen people who did not make a change on the second time, and I never ever discuss a result until they tell me, so I've seen the result and I'll say, so what did you change? And the response in that population will be, actually, I didn't change a lot. And I can tell you 100% of the time, my response will be, yes, I can see that you have made no change. Your scan is telling me X, Y, and Z. So you then have that second conversation. And again, you will take most of those. They will then change because it is reinforcing what they haven't done. But on the opposite side, the ones who make the change, if you can get them quick enough, We've got a a case of our lifestyle that they changed their liver fat because they gave up sugar. They'd increased exercise. They generally improved their diet for five years, but they wanted to keep their general sugar habit of sweets, apple pies, God knows what, every day. And they felt the exercise model was going to help them. They got their liver fat down from 370 to 290. That's still steatosis grade three, still significant risks. But what they did was then pandemic, third lockdown, give up sugar because and they actually got their liver fat down on one kilo weight loss, but normalized their liver fat. Now, that won't happen to everybody. But what you're trying to do is do it regularly enough because we just say lose 10% body weight. That is really, really difficult for most people to maintain without any feedback loops on what you're doing apart from scales. And people get frustrated. What they want to know is what's right for you, for your liver, or for you, for your lifestyle. We don't ever offer that in healthcare. But in lifestyle, we're And Ian described really early in this, in that last session, people don't want to know another diagnosis. On the other side, people coming in from a health fitness perspective, oh, I'm going to go on to a diet. What 
is my liver telling me now? How do I monitor it working? But have a totally different psychology. They're not in the patient mode of fear, of anxiety, of what it that they're in. What can I do to help? How can I make a change? How can I monitor that change? That's the behavior belief type model that we use for breast screening, for cervical screening, where you can make a difference to your outcome, i.e. prevent cirrhosis, or if you have cirrhosis, improve your outcomes and reduce your chances of liver cancer, things like that. Generally, people make that change. And I think we see that in lots of research where you monitor those changes. What we don't have yet, apart from the small pieces of work like the one at Easel recently, is how that small intervention can be highly cost-effective by measuring downstream outcomes, attendances to primary care practices, picking up reduction in diabetes risk, improvement of HbA1c by monitoring their liver fat. We do know that you don't reverse diabetes without losing liver and pancreatic fat, but we still just tell people to go and lose weight. We don't measure the outcomes that we can change. And that, for me, is where we need to change. These tools should not be seen as liver tools for liver people. These are peak toys and assessments for people whose livers are at risk. Where Ian's, and I don't know whether or not the strength of some of what Ian's been discussing in that portfolio is using it in the low-hanging fruit, the high-risk populations that we know have the majority of significant fibrosis, the type 2 diabetics with hypertension or high cholesterol. Making those changes upstream with somebody's behaviour in 9 out of 10 cases, when we get to things like a beta-colic acid, when it's £28,000 a year for somebody to be treated with primary sclerosis and cholangitis, then we're talking about a double dose, do a two and a half times the dose. How are NICE going to approve that in people who haven't been behavior managed, who haven't had access to nutritional assessments? This is where Ian's research and research that proves finding liver disease and risk patients in the community is going to give us tenfold, I would suspect, and more benefits because we're going to have to show that we've looked at behavioral change, lifestyle modification, what diet works for you. Mediterranean diet doesn't work in Japan. You've got to be very specific to the populations that you're looking at, whether it's lower socioeconomic classes, whether it's rural settings with food problems of getting it there, all sorts of problems that come in. But if we don't locate, we don't get an opportunity. And as Ian started the whole session with, this late diagnosis of liver disease is a current demonstration of the failures of the current pathways, which only look at abnormal liver function. We've got to look, I'd even put scan before that, let's find scan or another test of similar level in primary care to find out who we even need to do the blood tests on because 70% will have normal liver function. So Louise, uh, Ian, I'm going to turn to you in just a second, but it seems to me that what you just described up against Ian's model is a lot more expense. I'm not sure how much it improves the model in terms of liver disease per se. What does that description do to the economics of this model? And what benefit does it provide? Ian Rowe. So in the model, we looked at doing an elastography only strategy, and it is it's a lot more expensive than using before upfront. And I think it's, it's really important just to reinforce the point that this is a one-off test in a population who are considered to be at risk of liver disease, and the outcome is a diagnosis of liver disease. What we 
haven't looked at, what we don't really have sufficient data to model even is is about repeat testing. That's a re- you know that's a really important issue about how frequently this should be repeated. I would argue that there's not much difference between fibrosis first and ILFT because it's the same fibrosis measure. So if you're told that you know at the moment you don't have prognostically significant liver disease, that doesn't mean that you're not going to develop it, but you need to have another test in a defined period. I think you know people are talking about three years at the moment. I suspect that might be too short even. Uh, maybe five years would be would be better, but that's that all remains to be worked out. As I said before, you know, we sort of need to understand what the impact of these interventions are on on behaviour change in all, all aspects, and and whether repeating testing and that biofeedback increases engagement and increases the impact of the original diagnosis. That again, that again, we don't know, and I think it would be worthwhile exploring that in the alcohol setting. People have tried have done some studies, but they're poorly controlled, and it's not at all clear whether repeated measurements really do influence continued behavior change. What Louise says about you know her experience is really important, but unfortunately for services in general, people who are doing fibro scans and, and the areas in which fibro scans are being delivered, they're not all being done by Louise with, I wouldn't like to say how many years of experience, probably, I don't know, 10 or 15. Um, <laughs> um, so it is, it, is very, it is very different. And you know, the idea of a test and early intervention or you know brief intervention strategy it, it's complex and for the whole system we would need to know that that intervention was reproducible or in technical terms had high fidelity you know if it was given by a practitioner in Leeds it had to be the same as in Newcastle or in Aberystwyth or in Truro because only then would we know that it was going to have the impact that we that we think it's going to have and you know in doing this we started off with a simple idea that this was very straightforward and if we only did this then everything would it would all it would all make sense but the but the more that we look at it, the more we think it's a it's a good thing to test, but the more that we realise that there are huge questions around it that we simply don't know the answers to and that and that we must address. And just on one last thing that Louise said that the UK call for these partnership grants probably isn't isn't good for Louise, but NHR have just launched a call at the end of last week for a study in early diagnosis of liver disease that, that specifically includes elastography and that is intended to be done at the primary care level. So so I think that we will in time, probably quite a lot of time yet, um, have studies that will address this and give us some answers about what the best way to do it is. But even so, there will still be lots of remaining questions about whether, how and to what extent testing improves outcomes at the end of the day and and ultimately that's what really matters to patients. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingmesh.com. We'll be back next week with another challenging topic. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.